You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. Oh, wow. A woo. Right out the gate. Y'all making me feel so at home. This is delightful. This is so delightful. Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, if I have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Michael. I am one of our pastors at our Lexington Church, uh, and it's honestly a joy and an honor to get to be with you guys today. Uh, if I do know you, uh, I feel like I should go ahead and address the elephant in the room uh, and say that, yes, this is in fact what my chin looks like. Uh <laughs> I know that it has been years since many of you have seen it. It's been years since I have seen it, to be quite honest with you. But I thought it had like a real July 4th vibe to it, if I may. Uh, And so I thought I would bless you with this gloriousness as much as it's blessed me. So I hope you enjoy it this morning. It's my gift to you. Uh, So today uh, we're picking up in our series on the fruit of the spirit with the fruit of kindness. Uh, And to kind of unpack what kindness is and what it means for us, we're going to be looking together uh, at Ephesians chapter four, verse 30, all the way through chapter five, verse one. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, that'd be great. We're going to look there in some other places today, but that'll be the spot that we initially launch out, uh, launch out from. Uh, so if you want to turn there, I'll set us up a little bit and then we'll get down into it. So in uh, 2020, the world was taken by storm by a Midwestern, a fictional Midwestern football coach on Apple TV named Ted Lasso. You familiar? Some of y'all said, oh, you know where this is going. It's going, yeah, that's where, that's where we're going to be. Jason Sudeikis played a character that the world absolutely fell in love with. A football turned soccer coach who overcomes the odds, not with his wits or with his strength, like we're used to lead characters doing, but by disarming people with his radical kindness. He was this strange character who chose to see people for who they really were. A guy who didn't use people or move people out of his way to get to his own personal goals, but took time to really see those around them, getting to know them, getting to see their stories, their struggles, their pain, and then act in way, and then acted in ways small and large to communicate to them that they had value, that he cared for them, that they were loved. From things like biscuits with the boss that he would do with his boss who was going through her own messy divorce every morning where he would bring her a sweet treat just to check in or by recognizing that one of his players had a terrible father and it impacted everything from the way he played the game to how he related to his teammates. So he was willing to step in and say and do the things for this young man that his father was never willing to do all the way to, and spoiler alert, but look, it's been out for years now, so just deal with it, all the way to forgiving the very people who set out from the beginning to see him fail. Just a radical character and a radically strange character and our popular culture just could not get enough of Ted. Ted Lasso won all kinds of awards and critical acclaim. Harvard's Daily Paper even called his impact on pop culture Ted Lasso and the Kindness Revolution. And I think that's a really fitting assessment. Kindness has become something of an increasingly popular concept in our culture. Now, that's not necessarily because we're all that good at it. I would actually submit that we're not all that good at it. But I think that's precisely why we actually find it so attractive. We all kind of collectively sense our need for it. Collectively sense that kindness really is the good stuff 
in life. So much of our news feeds and sound bites tend to make us feel that the world is quite frankly, a harsh, cruel, extremely polarized and altogether unkind country whose capital city is Twitter. I've seen bumper stickers recently calling us to make America kind again. And signs posted up in people's yards exclaiming, kindness is everything. And it, the, point, the point is, it's like, it's like when we see kindness displayed in our cultural moment, it's almost like it's a breath of fresh air to our souls. Where we see it and we go, yeah, that, that, more of that. That's what the world needs. We need more kindness. And I don't think it's a stretch to argue that when we're told that the fruit of God's spirit in us is kindness, that in our cultural moment, perhaps we too as followers of Jesus are meant to be that kind of refreshing. And that's a bit of what I hope to help us step into this morning. And so to do that, we're going to start by looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. So let's read it together. This is Paul, and this is what he says. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So all the ways that our flesh might be tempted to respond to people, all the ways we might be tempted to relate to people in our sinful nature, especially the people who are difficult in our life, put all of those things away. Let that not be the way that you interact with anyone anymore. Instead, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So the first thing I want us to look at is what what does this text actually tell us about what it means for followers of Jesus to be kind? What does it tell us about kindness? So if you look again at verses uh, 32 and verse 1 of chapter 5, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. It's important to remember when we see these verses that when the scriptures were written, they were not written with these chapter and verse designations. Those were later additions. So though these two thoughts are the end and the beginning of two different chapters, we're actually supposed to see here the logical connection between the two. The instruction to be kind is connected to the one that calls us to imitate God. The logical conclusion being we are to be kind because God himself is kind. Or to say it another way, the basis for our kindness is God himself. In fact, God is the kindest being in all of creation. And our kindness, however it looks, is meant to imitate his kindness in the world. Now, depending on where you're coming from, that statement might hit you in a variety of ways. For some of you, I know you came from backgrounds or church experiences where God, where the God who was taught seemed to you like he was anything but kind. He was a God constantly on the lookout for any excuse to send you to hell. A God who did not delight in you, a God who did not enjoy you, a God who did not seek above all else to show you mercy, but was rather ready and waiting for you to slip up so he could give you what you deserve. And so for you to hear something like God is the kindest being of all in all creation, to you that sounds like a cruel joke. But the problem with that view of God is honestly the Bible. That is not actually the picture the Bible gives us. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that God is merciful and abundant in steadfast love, showing it to thousands, to the thousandth generation, and that his mercy and his goodness will follow us all the days of our life. This is who he is. He is a kind God. 
But also there are others of us, on the other hand, who make an equal yet opposite error when it comes to God's kindness. We sort of handpick other passages in the Bible, like the ones that tend to land on a coffee, coffee cup or that we put in a frame in our house. And we cultivate this type of God who is so quote unquote kind that he doesn't rustle any feathers at all. A God who would never say anything that would challenge us or rub anybody the wrong way. A God whose kindness is sort of just devolved into spiritual platitudes that make us feel good about ourselves. So he is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. Yes and amen, that is true. We just ignore the next verse that talks about his rod and his staff. And the problem with this depiction of God's kindness as well is the Bible. The kindness of God is bigger and more beautiful than both of these caricatures. And if we want to understand what it means for us to walk in this biblical kindness, we can't cherry pick some passages that do or don't sit well with us. We have to take in the totality of how the scriptures reveal God's kindness, who he is and how he acts, because you can't separate God's kindness from the rest of God. You can't separate God's kindness from the love of God. Those two attributes are in harmony with together, and you can't separate the kindness of God from the holiness and truth of God. Those attributes also work in harmony together. And so what does the kindness of God look like? Where do we see these two things meet? Well, the answer is really simple. The clearest picture we get of God's kindness in the scriptures is Jesus. God demonstrates to us his kindness in and through Jesus. I love the way Paul says it elsewhere in Titus chapter three. This is verse four. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What he's saying here is that Jesus is the appearance of God's kindness in the world. And if we want to understand how the kindness of God operates, we need to look no further than Jesus Christ himself. This Jesus who comes with compassion for the sick and the diseased, who reaches out in kindness to touch and heal the leper, to bring bring dignity and worth and honor to those cast aside in society. This Jesus who in kindness gives himself to the broken and the needy, the hurting and the forgotten. And this Jesus who in his kindness would not even let the Pharisees and the religious elite remain in the dark, believing that their outward displays of righteousness were going to be enough to save them and bring them into the kingdom. This Jesus who spoke up in radical ways, spoke up to show them the error of their ways that they too might be recipients of his mercy and grace. This Jesus who called all of the above to repent, who was willing to call sin, sin, and to tell people, even if it rustled their jimmies, that they needed saving. It's similar to how it would be unkind if you let your roommate, you know, go out on a date and his breath smelled terrible. Or hypothetically speaking, if you let one of your pastors get up on stage with a hideous mustache and acted like it was totally fine. In a very similar way, it, it is just as unkind to, to look at those who need saving and let them believe that they don't. And above all, this Jesus, who through God's kindness gives us what we don't deserve forgiveness, reconciliation, new redeemed life. 
This Jesus who paid what we owe, though we were, as the scriptures say, God's enemies in our sin and do deserve the consequences and all of the consequences of that rebellion, God displays his kindness towards us by not treating us that way, by instead dying the death for sin that we deserved to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to make us into something altogether new. You see, the kindness of God does not shy away from the hard truth, but mercifully reaches out to us in it. As one pastor I read said, God's kindness is his love in action. That's what kindness is. It is God's love in action. And here's why I bring all of that up. For one, we have to get rid of all of these false understandings of what God is like. God is kind, kinder to us than we could ever imagine. And we don't need to erase or sand down any of his edges to see that. In fact, those things only show us in greater measure how kind, how truly kind God is. I love that that passage uses the term tenderhearted. It's a word that means easily moved to love and compassion. And I can't help but think that that is what some of us need to hear, how God feels towards us this morning, how God feels towards you this morning. Some of you I know believe that God's disposition towards you, you believe that it isn't one that is easily moved to love. But I would encourage you to look at Jesus and to see just how wrong you are. He loves you. He is kind to you and gracious and merciful to you. And Jesus is all the proof we will ever need. And unless we see him this way, unless we truly down into the depths of our souls see him this way, unless we see him for all the beauty of his kindness and mercy towards us, we will never be motivated to become a people who embody this type of kindness ourselves. But for two, I bring all of that up to not just get rid of all these false understandings we have about God, but also to get rid of all these false understandings we have about kindness too. You see, we often confuse kindness for other things, things like niceness or passivity, like being kind is as simple as smiling and being polite or refusing to do or say something because somebody else might not want to hear it. But none of that is kindness. Like Romans 2, 4 says, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is anything but passive. God's kindness has a goal. It has something good that it wants to give to somebody else. Whether they want it or not, he wants to put it out there for them. God intentionally acts in his kindness. He acted on his kindness by sending Jesus into the world to meet us where we are, to reach out to us in our deepest need and pain, to forgive and to heal. And in so doing, this Jesus, who was full of the loving kindness of God, was willing at times to say and do the hard things that people didn't always want, but desperately needed. And what we must understand is that the fruit of God's spirit in us is that we might become a people who do much the same, who reach out to people where they are in whatever the brokenness or pain or need may be, and a people who are willing to step up to the plate and say the things and share the things that people really need, regardless of whether or not they know it, and regardless of whether or not they want it. Now, all of that sounds well and good, right? Like, yes, God is kind. And yes, as his people, it would be good for us and for the world to embody it. But how? How could it be possible for us to grow into people like this? 
How could it be possible for us to become a person of kindness in a world and in a moment where everyone wants us to see and treat the person on the other side of the aisle as the absolute scum and villainy of the earth? How can we become people of kindness when bare minimum, it seems that we are simply surrounded by people who are so different than us, who frustrate us, who annoy us or simply just make things more difficult for us than they actually need to be. Like, listen, I know Ted Lasso is great, but he's fake. How can we have a refreshing kindness towards the very real difficult people who inhabit our very real difficult lives? This was actually the question that the Ephesian church was asking as well. You see, the Ephesian church was composed of two groups of people who were formerly at total odds with one another, the Greeks or the Gentiles and the Jews. And much of the aim of Paul's letter in a lot of ways is for for him to teach the people of the church to learn how to get along with one another, how to be family with one another, despite these absolutely polarized places that they come from. Like, I want you to think about polarized groups in our culture, all right, which shouldn't be that hard. They're a dime a dozen. People who are at odds with each other, who seem like there's no feasible way that they could get along. That is a similar dynamic to what is happening with the Jews and the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. The Jewish people generally saw Greeks as the heathen. They were seen as unholy. They lived detestable lives and were enemies of God. The Greco-Roman Gentiles, on the other hand, saw the Jews as this little, as this little sect of backwoods people who were super religious, almost cult-like, with strange beliefs and practices. They saw them as an obstinate people who would not get with the times. And in many areas, they, they were believed to be a cancerous tumor to the Roman Empire. Not to mention that during the time of Roman occupation, many Jewish communities were seen as second-class citizens. So from class to race to religion, Jews and Gentiles were at complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Jews and Greeks alike would look at each other with a degree of disdain for the other's behaviors, beliefs, and practices. And now, in the providential love and grace of God, they've all become Christians and are a part of the same church together. And the question naturally arises, how can this possibly work? How can this possibly work? Because on the surface, it seems like it's just a ticking time bomb for this little church family until until we wind up with the second Ephesian church in Ephesus, right? But in chapter two, he hits them with this. Ephesians two, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see? Do you see what breaks down their division? What breaks down their hostility? the story of the gospel. He reminds them that at the end of the day, they all share a common story with one another. He doesn't say, okay, guys, you need to get along. So let's talk about politics and race and let's all get on the same page with that, okay? 
Rather, what he does is he begins by sharing with them the common story that they all share, regardless of their differences. He tells them that this is the thing that now enables you to be okay with one another. The story you share together in Jesus, this is what actually unites you over and above all your differences. All the things that you believe should divide you, cause friction between you, and make you mistreat one another. All of that in Christ has been torn down. You now share more in common than you ever thought possible. Such that when he gets to verse 32 and says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, it's the only thing that feasibly makes sense. If the truest story of their life, the thing that really gave them worth or salvation was actually all the things that they thought divided them, then they should hold those things against one another. Because those divisions would be ultimately most important their backgrounds, their identity markers, their political affiliations, their status, those would be things to fight over, to look down on others for or mistreat someone for. But the biblical story is something deeper and truer. And because of that, they have a common story and a common humanity. So they can be kind to one another. Because when you see that, when you see the commonness that you share with the person sitting next to you, it enables you to be kind to them, to treat them, as Jesus would say, as you want to be treated. Because you realize underneath it all, you are in just about the same boat as everyone else. And the growth of kindness in your life is actually dependent upon the same. By recognizing that you too share a common story with all those around you. You see, believe it or not, you have a common story with every single person you encounter, regardless of who they are, where they're from, regardless of what side of the aisle they fall on or whatever. You have a common story with every colleague at your job, every classmate next to you, your spouse, every member of your life group, every child that you have, every, uh, every boss, every politician, every pastor, even every troll on Twitter, everyone you encounter is a person who needs the kindness of God, just like you are a person who needed the kindness of God. And learning to see, learning to see that common story is how the fruit of God's spirit, kindness, will grow in you too. So when the world tells you that you have to pick a team and you have to demonize those on the other side, The fruit of the Spirit stops that dead in its tracks and recognizes that everyone is an image bearer of God, just like you. No matter where they stand on a given topic or a given issue or whatever it may be, they are a person who is made by God in his image and therefore worthy of dignity, value, and love. Not someone who is meant to be mistreated or talked to, spoken to harshly or pushed to the side or disregarded or whatever it may be, but someone that God loves that he himself made just like he made you. When the world wants you to fit into their story and says you're either for us or against us on any number of things, the fruit of the spirit refuses to think like that and instead chooses the better story that says, I'm always for you. Even when we disagree, Because this is who God is as well, who sees that we're all in this together, that we've all been impacted by sin and God loves us just the same. 
and that these people are just people who have their own issues they're personally dealing with, just like you. That they have grouchy days where they wake up on the wrong side of the bed, just like you. In a world of 24-7 news and social media hot takes and cancel culture where you can make one false step and your life gets totally blown up with no hope of redemption, the fruit of the Spirit is able to see the common story that is shared between every human being that we are all caught up in and we can step towards forgiveness and reconciliation whereas the rest of the world tells us we can't. When the world wants you to define yourself and others by a relationship status or the type of job that you have, or how you voted recently, or your your sexual orientation, the fruit of the Spirit sees the common humanity in everyone and responds accordingly, recognizing that these are not the truest true things about me or about anyone else. The truest true thing about me is my need for Jesus and what he's done for me. And that is a story that I share in common with everyone, that they need to experience the life-reviving news of Jesus just like I did. They need grace and understanding, just like me. They need someone to befriend them and love them and tell them that there is life in Jesus and they need to repent, just like me. You see, spirit-led kindness humanizes rather than demonizes. That is the type of life that we are being invited up into a life that chooses to see the whole and true story of a person and to respond in kind. I love the way that Jackie Hill Perry talks about it. She says, there is a kindness that only the spirit of God can produce in us. It goes beyond being nice and cordial. It is more miraculous than a forced smile beyond our natural ability to construct. Kindness reminds the world of God and how Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's kindness towards us. He gave him without our asking. The benevolent God models this still. When we do the same, we help folks imagine what heaven is like. That is what we are invited into with this fruit of the Spirit. Our kindness helps others imagine what heaven is really like. So for a moment, I want you to think about the people or the person in your life who who just really grates on you. Just really, really grates on you. A person who is, it is most difficult, even on your best days, to be kind to. Perhaps because they are unkind to you. Maybe it's someone you know who believes virtually everything you disagree with and is loud about it. Maybe it's a family member who's draining for you in every imaginable way. Maybe it's a coworker or a boss who gets on your nerves and is critical of you all the time and around other people. Or that person in your life group who annoys you and always seems to say something that makes you just want to roll your eyes. Every group has one. And if you think, and if you think your group doesn't, we need to talk. Or maybe it's the person who's sinned against you like really and truly has done something wrong against you. When it comes to these people, we have some options in front of us. We can choose to respond in one of three ways. For one, we can respond by withholding our relationship. You can internally stew over how deeply you disagree or dislike them. 
as you resolve in your heart that you can't possibly get get along with this person because of what they've done or what they believe. So you cut them off from any sort of relationship with you. And maybe you bottle that up and keep it to yourself, growing in bitterness and frustration. Perhaps you may disclose it to others so you can form your own little team against this person. You can make them the enemy, the villain, the demon. This is polarization. Or you can take a slightly more subtle route and you can be nice. You can respond by perhaps perhaps ignoring it or just pushing it down within you. So inwardly, you acknowledge that things are off, but you still smile when they show up and engage in small talk. You allow this relational elephant to always be in the room with you and things just will go cold and distant over time, leading in much the same way as polarization to bitterness and cruelty. For what it's worth, these are how the rest of the world responds. And as we said at the top, we can see where that type of response gets us. Or you can allow the Spirit of God to move you to kindness in light of Jesus. You can ask the Spirit to remind you of your common story, that each of you in this relationship needs Jesus, and allow that to cause you to move towards mercy and love, to see them for the person that they really are, to choose to intentionally choose to build togetherness and love in situations that could be explosive, to bless them with good in the very places that bitterness and ill will could flourish, to help them in their need, to speak the truth to them in love, to offer a helping hand and a healing touch, to show them a glimpse of heaven, even if they would never respond the same to you. And not only would that change your life, but it might just change theirs as well and enable them to see that another world is not only possible, but it's coming. That what Jesus has said is true and what he is going to do is going to happen. You, your choice of kindness to allow this fruit to take root in you enables this to be a possibility. And if that sounds absolutely impossible and difficult, look, on our own, it totally is. But the good news is we have said all this series, we are not on our own. Now to end our time, I just wanna share a small story with you because I imagine that the question that we might be tempted to ask is, can this actually work? Like, can this actually work in real life? Like, aren't we past a time when kindness can actually change anything? I mean, isn't our society just a little bit too far gone? Like it can easily feel like any amount of kindness we might show is but a drop in the ocean of harshness and cruelty and polarization. So the story I want to share you is the story share with you is the story of a woman named Rosario Butterfield. She's a pretty famous author now, but in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she chronicles the story of her conversion from a devout postmodern lesbian professor to a devout evangelical Christian. It's a very radical transformation, perhaps as big a one as you could imagine. At one point in her career, before becoming a Christian, she wrote a rather scathing critique of a group of Christian men, of which she received like an enormous volume of polarized responses. She says at one point, she placed an empty box on each corner of her desk, and she sorted the mail she got, she got into two groups, hate mail on one end and fan mail on the other. 
But then she received a two-page response from a local pastor. She says, it was a kind and inquiring letter. It had a warmth and a civility to it in addition to its probing questions. And I love these next couple of sentences. She says she could not figure out which box to put the letter in. So it sat on her desk for seven days. It was like she couldn't fit it into the niceness or the polarization box. She says it was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. Its tone demonstrated that the writer wasn't against me. Eventually, she contacted the pastor and they became friends, uh, and she became friends with him and his wife. And she says, they talked to me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Their friendship was an important part of her journey to faith. Eventually, she becomes a believer in Jesus through these ongoing interactions with this couple. For Rosario, what changed the trajectory of her life was interacting with genuinely kind Christians, people who loved her enough to reach out to her, to open their home to her, to share meals with her ongoingly for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, and people who loved her enough to share their convictions with her to reach out to her and to ask her questions and to say winsomely, I love you, you're my friend. And because I love you, you have to know I disagree with you. And this isn't what Jesus wants for you. And what Jesus offers is actually better for you than what you think you have right now. And for Rosaria, it just blew up her categories of what she thought a Christian was supposed to be. It's like, wait a minute, you you know me and you're not treating me like an enemy? And you're telling me I need to repent, but you also want to be my friend? What's going on? What moved her from a place of polarization to a place of wanting to follow Jesus was the up-close and personal interactions with Christians who exuded God's kindness. And at the time, I'm sure Rosaria didn't know it all, but she was actually seeing glimpses of heaven through them. So listen. I don't know who God has placed in your life. And I don't know how difficult that situation is. And I don't know how difficult they are. But what I do know is that you and I are invited to imitate God there. And if God and his infinite depths of mercy showed you such radical grace by disrupting your life, then by his spirit, you can do the same for others. And if God who sent his very son into the world to sacrifice and forgive you of all your sins and failings and mess up, then by his spirit, you can forgive others. You can reconcile with others. And if God in his radical kindness led you to repentance, then his spirit can do that for others as well through the kindness that you show to them. And my hope is like Rosaria seeing that letter, people will see how you interact and know what you believe and will have no idea what box to put you in because you are demonstrating a kindness that is so supernaturally powerful and so supernaturally other type of kindness that our world longs for but has no idea how to acquire for themselves and in a world drowning in bitterness and rage and anger that you and I as God's people might be the very breath of fresh air that that person needs. Let's pray.